The Tea Stop In podcast is inspired by a long tradition of relaxed conversations about the film industry and the craft of cinematography. As a working cinematographer, producer and colourist, Ben Allen, ACSCSI, gets to have conversations with some of the most exciting people in the industry today. And we're inviting you to listen in. T-Stop In. I'm Ben Allen and welcome to the T-Stop In, brought to you by ARI Australia and MZ Online Training. Mihai Malamare Jr. is renowned for his innovative and creative approach to cinematography, with an incredible body of work both in his native Romania and with some of the world's most respected directors, such as Francis Ford Coppola and Paul Thomas Anderson. His recent work on Jojo Rabbit with director Taika Waititi created one of the standout films of the year and some remarkable imagery. Mihai, Welcome to the Tea Stop Inn. Thanks for having me. How did Jojo Rabbit come to you? For me, it happened like really, really fast because I was um, I was actually doing reshoots in, in Atlanta for for the Hate You Give, and uh, I I received the the script ready pretty fast, and then I had a, a Skype meeting next day with with Taika, and yeah. uh, from from that moment on, <laughs> kind of uh, every everything <laughs> happened really fast. I, uh, after the reshoot, I flew back home to LA for four days, and then straight to Prague to begin prep. Wow, <laughs> so, that is fast. Yeah, I, I knew and I love all the movies that Taika did, so yeah. uh, it wasn't quite a surprise to, to read the script. It was a very well-written script, mm. so it, it was great. It was a pleasure to read, and it was, I, I was able to read it really fast, and I could kind of see what, what Taika would be able to, to do with it. So what was that initial Skype conversation with Taika like? Like a lot of times you're, you're thinking of, uh, about all these meetings that like you'll, you'll have to, to show certain imagery or a certain approach that you're thinking about. Mm. But it, it was great. It was totally different. We were both trying to figure out if we'll get along and if we like or hate the same things. And it's kind of the most important thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Because from that, like if you if you figure out that there are certain things you both like, then from that moment on, it's easy and you just yeah. jump into yeah. <laughs> jump into it right away. And I think it was great. I heard, I mean, I, I read a few interviews that he did and he kind of had the same recollection that uh, that was, pretty much the most important thing we accomplished in, <laughs> in that sky. Uh, we figured out like, oh yeah, we can actually work together and uh, we can have fun and we can wow. come up with interesting things. <laughs> so when you started pre-production on the film that quickly, what were your initial thoughts about how to approach the visual style? I think there were a lot of things we tried to see right away and of course Part of it, and we jumped right into seeing locations. And of course, mm. like in Czech Republic, there are so many interesting things to take advantage of. And it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm originally from Romania, so architecture-wise, there are a lot of similarities. But mm. the, the main difference is that for some reason in the Czech Republic, there, you can find little towns where they were either really careful where building stuff uh, in, in the modern days or... <laughs> I don't know exactly what happened, but you cannot really see a lot of air conditioning. Something that is amazing because then you just remove the, the cars and, and get rid of some modern signs on the street and you're there. It feels wow. like 1930s, 1940s, all of a sudden. And 
that, that was amazing, and like we got so many ideas by just like driving around and like going to to those locations and trying to figure out how to shoot it. Usually, you wanna come up with visual references and try to figure out how other movies were were made, but mm. I I try to avoid that uh, as much as possible. I I don't know why. I think because I like still photography so much, and I feel that I can yeah. find more interesting things in still photography. And I always try to start with that and try to to see if if there is inspiration for a certain project there. Mm. We we found something that it wasn't necessarily uh, talking to us from a visual perspective, but it had a certain vibe that I think it was really great for for Giorgio's story. And what we did, we printed, I remember searching for as many seals with kids from World War II and, and yeah. Magnum Agency is like an amazing source for for that. And wow. going to all the amazing steel, steel photographers. And I remember printing a, a lot of them and taking them to the wall and we're looking at those and there are so many amazing moments and they're like really genuine, like normal, like kid stuff. You, you see kids playing and all of a sudden you just realize like, oh, like some of them are wearing gas masks wow. in these photos or they're playing on a burned down car or <laughs> by the by a pile of bombs. And it was something surreal and something that I think that was talking to us a lot. And I think it was more about the, the feeling of the story than visual. And then mm. visual-wise, we kind of had, all of us from all the departments, we kind of had the same idea at once, I think, because we realized like we can play with color so much and mm. it would be something that wasn't done before a story about World War Two. And we realized that we were all shocked the first time we saw color footage from World War Two because... Yeah you're usually used to black and white images or, you yeah. know, and <laughs> the first time you see a color image and you realize like, oh my God, they, they actually had a lot of colors. There was a lot of color saturation in the, and textures in the The world in, was colored the most of the film, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's also like, if you think about it, like the color negative, like the actual color negative yeah. and the, the history around that. So, I mean, it, there are a lot of things that are kind of pushing us in, in that direction and in different meetings looking at the at the art department sketches that Rod did and, and all sorts of other references and textures and wallpaper and mm. then all sorts of costume samples and then you realize like yeah color saturation was a big thing back then of course we realize that that will allow us to shift the tone towards the end of the movie and mm. uh, it's always about contrast there's nothing better than being able to shift the tone and then we knew that we want to have a lot of smoke and a more monochromatic colder palette towards the end. Mm. And when the audience gets used for like two-thirds of the movie with, with a really warm tone, and then everything else, when you shift to a, to a colder palette, that, that will feel twice as colder than it actually is. So that's yeah, kind yeah. of one of the tricks we had. It's amazing how much that works, that, you know, our, so much of our perception of visuals and colour is about context. And so you, you set up that expectation yeah, of yeah. this is vibrant, this is rich, it's warm, and then you twist that. The impact is, is huge. Yeah, yeah. And it's something I felt that Taika is using in, in his own style where, like, he, he, he makes the audience relax with humour and, and, yeah. and then he like, punches really hard. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great technique and uh, yeah. it works really well. So with that decision that you know the, the, the saturated rich colors were going to be a major part of 
that first section of the film. How much of that happened in front of the camera and did you do anything in terms of LUTs or planning with the grade for that? We did quite a lot. I enjoyed doing that and I, I actually uh, tried as much as possible. And for Jojo, I was able to bring my all-time collaborator, my DIT, with me. His name is Eli Burke. And the reason for that, I mean, like, it's a very important tool. And, mm. like, you can do so much by playing with CDLs or even yeah. just, like, adjusting just a color tempo a little bit. And it will, it will yeah, yeah. Uh, give you all sorts of ideas while you're lighting. So I think it's one of the really one of the most important tools that we have now. And we did quite a lot. I mean, we, we did a lot of camera tests and we tried different things. But a, a lot of times, like the way we work, sometimes we create CDLs, even for certain shots, not only for, yeah. for scenes. So it, it depends a lot. But I don't think we enhanced the saturation too much. But we, we didn't go the other way. We didn't desaturate it either. So we, we knew that we don't want to shy away from, from mm. color. And, and we we had enough time to to do quite a lot of camera tests, and it's a teamwork. Like the fact that we were able to to test certain patterns and wallpapers mm. and costumes and 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 makeup, and, and that, that that was an amazing thing to have because usually you are doing one or two camera tests and then you you jump straight <laughs> straight in. Um, we we had enough time to test a lot of things and lenses and, and everything so that, that was part of the huge team effort <laughs> that, that was. so we'll come back to lenses of course but uh, when you shifted into that more desaturated section of the film was much of that done with the CDL process there were a lot of interesting that were happening like we used quite a lot of like real explosions and the amount mm. of smoke that we got from from there and so that would be starting to desaturate things we we had a a few overcast days and when you have like smoke and overcast it like mm. kind of shifts towards blue right away and then we, we kind of recreate that in, in a few sunny days that we had afterwards mm. <laughs> and we, we helped a little more with the CDLs just to, to try to to shift towards a, a colder look for that mm. but there were a lot of elements because also that the costumes and the locations were kind of shifting in that direction as well and when when you have all these elements working together then uh, it's much easier mm. and it, it i guess it kind of adds up to more than some of its parts in many ways yeah yeah so the cdls that you were creating on set they presumably would flow through to editorial so they'd be seeing the same decisions that you were making i try that as, as much as possible mm. because i think it's, it's nothing worse than as a director <laughs> being stuck in an editorial for like three months or more uh, with with, with an image that you yeah, don't yeah. like and yeah. even if you know it can be <laughs> changed <laughs> later i think i and plus i mean we, we did something that that was amazing we, we did as much as possible like once or twice a week we tried to do projected daily oh, wow. and uh, that helps everybody because it's like usually now we are in a hotel room like everybody watches on a, on a small laptop or yeah. You know, so it's like you're so far away from the real experience. You know, it's a completely different but the experience, fact that we're able, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the fact that we were able to, to go there, quite a lot of us from, from the crew and watch it on a proper size screen and having a, a really early mm. <laughs> experience, very similar to what the audience would have. Even when it's not working and when you know scenes were and you could have done better, like you, you shift the mood and everybody goes to work the next day with a totally <laughs> different uh, wow. feeling. 
it's very important. It's, it's, it's funny how easy it is to forget about that, but when you have the chance to do it, you, you realize how important it is. I think in many ways it's probably the biggest thing that might have been lost in the transition to digital, and it's not because it's not possible. It's just yeah. it's not inescapable. Yeah, yeah. And it, it takes a little bit of a, a little effort, and, and but it, it's so, so worth it, I think. Do you find that it helps the collaboration within the crew to experience it the does, rushes? It does, yeah, yeah, because even if you watch a scene that is amazing, then like your mode is perfect, and that's mm. like say, but even if you watch something that wasn't working, then you're trying to figure out, and, and it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's teamwork. Like Everyone's you know, doing it together. Like, uh, even now you regroup and try to figure out and, and talk about it, and like, okay, what do we need to do to, so we mm. don't experience that the next <laughs> time we're watching daily. With the camera testing, you, you ended up with you know an amazing combination of camera and lens technology there that I, I haven't actually heard of anyone. I'm sure somebody's done it, but I haven't heard of anyone using this combination before. Can you talk me through what that is and how you came to that? It was. I mean, I read about it somewhere at one point. <laughs> I don't remember exactly. But I started researching. I, mean, I, I know for sure that Gasman Sun used it in, in Promise Lab. Right. And it, it's something that basically the, the regular anamorphic lenses that we all, all know and use mm. there two times. So there are also these 1.3 anamorphic. Yeah. And uh, it, it's not clear. I mean, I know about, for example, the, the Panavision 1.3s that were, that were made for, for Ben Hur in the 50s. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, those were those were made for sixty five mil for five perf. So yep, from to get the ratio of sixty five five mil, you get a two two seven zero. Yeah. And again, like the the Hawks, they they won't cover the sixty five. But those those one point threes were made for starting from a sixteen by nine aspect ratio, and uh, with a one point three squeeze, you'll get to a two four zero. And that's a very interesting use for, for the 1.3 lenses. But what I read about it at one point is that if you actually start with a square instead of 16 by 9, you'll, mm. you'll get something very close to, to 185. You'll get like a 1.95, something like that. So it's with, with minimal cropping, you, you would get an anamorphic 185. And that's a tremendous advantage because you can use two times and, and from 240 to crop to 185. But yeah. I always felt that uh, you lose the most interesting part that an anamorphic lens can offer. And it's yeah, like the yeah. fall off around the edges. And we tried them. I think the, the first test we did it was more to determine the aspect ratio that would be right. more uh, appropriate for, for Giorgio's story. And we started with 133, 166. 185 spherical, wow. and then we try 240 two times anamorphic, and we realized very early on that 240 was too overly cinematic, and it felt we were trying too hard, <laughs> and <laughs> it didn't it didn't feel right for the story. Yeah. But as soon as we dropped that from our list, we we both felt tight and I we were like, wow, I kind of miss that that anamorphic feeling. So yeah. that's when I I remember about reading about using the 1.3 for 185 and we did another test trying those and they were amazing because you get the same kind of velvety quality of the skin tones and you get some anamorphic flares not as as much as you would get with a two times anamorphic but you get mm. some and everything worked perfectly for us and it was kind of exactly what we wanted wow because i guess even though it's not as extreme as the two times anamorphic you still got that extra big chunk of glass in there doing stuff with the light. Yeah, and also, I mean, the background, the way it follows, like, follows, like every, everything, like every, every, everything we love about anamorphic is there. Mm. 
That's amazing. And I guess it's uh, just an extraordinary numerical quirk that the, the 4 by 3 <laughs> frame with the 1.33 anamorphic, yeah. like two, but, two mean, things that existed for completely separate reasons that actually add true, up yeah. to a standard cinema aspect ratio. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's amazing <laughs> now. What's great about what's happening today is that it's like things became so easy. Like you just go on the airy frame generator and you can do all the calculations there. You don't have to dig deep in that. You just go on a website and you realize right away, it's like, oh, okay, this is how much I will have this to work. This is how much my <laughs> resolution will end up being. It's, it's, it's great. Like we have all the tools. Yeah. One of the main things that made this creative approach to Jojo Rabbit possible is the flexibility of the ARRI Alexa system with its 4x3 mode. The other essential part of making a non-conventional combination of lenses, sensor mode and aspect ratio work is being able to produce fully customizable frame lines for the camera. Along with a range of other tools, ARRI makes this as easy as accessing a free web app on their website where anyone can select an ARRI camera and a range of other variables to create custom frame lines for use in the camera. If you're wanting to create something unusual with this system, the team at ARRI Australia can be incredibly helpful in guiding you through what's possible with the ARRI cameras and lenses and how you can achieve the result you want. Did you feel that there was, I mean, apart from the, the flares, obviously, did you feel that there was any other kind of significant difference about being at a 1.3? Three anamorphic to being at a two times anamorphic? I mean, it's not as, it depends on the story and the approach itself. Mm. Like sometimes I, I enjoy those those focus pulls in two times anamorphic. Sometimes mm. they can be too drastic. But mm. the 1.3 was like kind of in the middle. It wasn't as drastic as a two time pull, but like it, it wasn't like the spherical either, you know? So it's like it's very interesting where, and the fact that I, I always try to, to carry some spherical lenses when I'm shooting anamorphic just because sometimes, especially in the interiors, like a wide anamorphic lens might distort so much that, that you might need to, to go spherical for that. And mm. nowadays it's so easy to do that. And yeah, with digital finishing. Of course finishing. you have to, yeah. to yeah, yeah, you'll need to work a little more on the spherical one just to, to kind of get closer to the anamorphic look and there are a few tricks you can do. Mm. But it's always great to be able to do that and knowing that you will be able to do that without the audience being aware of, of that, you know. Yeah, I guess that's one of the wonderful things about all these subtle visual cues is that they, they can affect the audience on a level that the audience is rarely ever conscious of. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the other characteristics of the Hawk lenses? Because they're you know, they've been around for a while. They're they're very well-regarded lenses, but they are still a little bit of a, a, a more quirky choice. What's some of the other characteristics Yeah, of they them? do have, uh, like compared to other anamorphic lenses, I was amazed to find like they have uh, 20 anamorphic, for example, right? Or 28. Wow. Like <laughs> in, in, in anamorphic two times, for example, <laughs> like if you have a 40, that's, that's a wide lens, yeah. a 40 anamorphic. Like uh, if you think of a 20, that's like quite extreme. <laughs> and also like one, one of the things you have to be really careful with when you're showing anamorphic is the, the minimum focusing distance. And a lot of times you have to work with diopters and and do all sorts of other tricks. But for some reason, the Hawks, they, they can focus quite close. Wow. And that's amazing with anamorphic. I remember using two times anamorphic quite a lot and carrying all the time like a, a set of diopters very close to the camera because a lot of times you end up like, I need like a few more inches. I want to be closer and yeah. like this hundred mil will allow me to, <laughs> to do that. There are certain things also you have to be careful because if you don't frame somebody 
dead center at the wide apertures. You might get in trouble. The fall off might be too drastic. But those are things that if you're aware and if you're careful with, with them, like you, you end up getting great results. Were there elements from the still photography that you looked at that you were able to draw on in terms of composition? There were a few things, but I mean, not necessarily the ones I mentioned before, mm-hmm. the, the ones with the keys from, from Magnum Photo, but I tend to spend a lot of time searching for stills, and I do enjoy looking and searching for, for stills quite a lot on Flickr, because for some reason that platform, I think it's, it's, it's about the way the stills are presented and the fact that you have you can see a, a very, very big, decent resolution full screen mm. and it's not about necessarily the, the number of likes or messages yeah. <laughs> it's more about, it's about scrolling through the, 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 <laughs> the photo in a good way and I, I found quite a lot like there are some many amazing amazing photographers and a lot, a lot of times you just you might get a, an idea about composition or lighting or, or like, it, it's amazing I think it's really helpful to, to go through so so much imagery just to not necessarily looking for a specific thing, but just like the more you you see things, the the, the more ideas you might you might get, and then they might really work for for your story. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that strikes me, looking at um, particularly that first section, the the vibrant section of Jojo Rabbit, is that it's a combination of incredibly soft light and a good amount of contrast there as well. How did you approach mm-hmm. doing that in some of the locations that you were working in? Some time, not uh, not a lot, but it took some time because I remember, like I, I do like shadows a lot. Yeah. A lot of times, I would be, I would uh, try as much to, <laughs> to 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 work with harder light than than soft light. But mm. it was a fine line, and I remember talking to Taika about it. And it's a fine line. We didn't want it to look necessarily like a, a lit, like a, a comedy with like high key and and. But we didn't want it to to be overly dramatic either. Mm. So it was a lot about finding that fine line and try to, to navigate it and try to, to see what it makes sense for each scene or for each uh, space. And uh, sometimes, I mean, I, I think it was, we, we did basically all Jojo's house, all the interiors were, were built on stage. And we, we had amazing, amazing looking stages. But... I remember it was a, a big conversation with, like, what would we have outside the windows? You can do a lot of things with, like, trans lights or, like, side trees and, mm. and other other set pieces and things like that. But I really liked how just, like, shooting some big Fresnel lights through shears uh, and mm. there's a certain quality of, uh, of light. Diffusion filters are great, but I feel that, like, there's a certain material this can can diffuse the light in, in such a way that it's like uh, it's more organic. And we kind of embrace that, the fact that you don't see clearly outside the window, and they kind mm. of did that in, in certain locations as well, where we added more dust on the on the windows or, <laughs> or played with more shears and, and things like that. And there's a certain quality to it, but we're, we're trying not to be too soft with our, our light. It's a fine line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So how involved were you with the DI process? I enjoyed it a lot, and uh, uh, we were lucky because sometimes these things, like, you, you'll never know how much the editorial will take, and mm. uh, I was lucky enough to work with the colorist team, Stephen, from, from Company 3. Fantastic. I worked with him before for a certain project, but I, I did with him a, a walk among the tombstones back in, back in the day, and wow. Team Stephen. 
And he's such an amazing colorist, and like he gets the story right away. And then it was a perfect collaboration, and I, I enjoyed the DI so much. You usually do it at a time where like it's been a while since you you finished shooting, so you have mm. enough time to to forget a lot of things, and then you kind of start <laughs> over and come to it fresh. You get to fix all the, all the things you wanted to. Yeah, to yeah. Fix first. It's a great process, and mm. uh, you get to see the movies like. 30, 40 times, <laughs> which is amazing. But it's great. And there, there are a lot of things you end up doing, but like there are so many other tools you can you can use to train the DI. It's, it's quite amazing. So what are some of the tools that you were relying on in the DI for Jojo Rabbit? I like uh, using Power Windows a lot, yeah. but like I, sometimes <laughs> I use those for, especially like when, uh, when I'm using wide spherical lenses, Yep. Uh, in a scene that, that had mainly anamorphic lenses, I always tried to do vignettes with power windows and defocus those vignettes, kind of applying a fall-off, like mm. fake fall-off to the spherical lens to make it more look more like a, an anamorphic <laughs> one. But there are so many things you, you can do, and it's always, again, like finding the right balance and trying mm. not to, to overdo anything. The core of finding this sort of balance is knowing your tools and how to get exactly the result you want from them. MZ Online Training is the exclusive home of official ARRI Academy training on the web. Their courses cover the full range of ARRI cameras and give detailed insights into how and why the cameras work the way they do and how you can make them do exactly what you want them to for your creative vision. For a limited time when you join MZ Pro, you not only get access to the full MZ Pro library of courses, but also an additional free membership to give to someone you choose. So check out all the details at mz.com. I remember the team and I had a, had a rule, like uh, as soon as you go past 10 nodes in, in your, <laughs> on your timeline, you have to start over because <laughs> the, more you, you know, the, the more you correct things, like at one point, yeah, if, yeah. if you, you don't reach something that is pleasant to the eye, there's no way you'll, uh, by, by just doing more corrections, <laughs> you'll get there. So That's fantastic. Better to I start fresh and <laughs> try a different approach. <laughs> and uh, we, we both like that. And a lot of times it's like you have to uh, to come up with a, with a plan and like how many reels can you do per day? And mm. do you want to end with a really important scene or just go start fresh the next day? And there there's so many interesting things that happen in the eye. Mm. It's more about painting and, and, and like watching uh, images than, than, than the real crazy experience that you have on set when you're, when you're shooting the movie. It is a very satisfying creative process, the DI, isn't it? It is. There's so much of what you do is so immediate and you get to see the results straight away. And yeah. 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 And it's, it's yeah. putting that final polish on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Like sometimes your memory can play certain tricks on you and like you you're afraid of certain scenes and they those turn out to be like very easy and they look yeah. great or or things that you didn't realize like all of a sudden you see them and you're like oh my god i have to fix that <laughs> I hope it, it can be done but it's also like i, I also try i think that's, that that was the key for me at least to trying to get as close as possible to what we wanted on set and, mm. and try to work with my dit as much as possible and when you do that you have enough time in the di to shift the tone maybe and to mm. change certain certain things 
Did you have your CDL from on set carried through as the starting point for the DI? More or less, it was always a timeline as a reference. Yeah. Uh, like the, the, the offline that we can go and, and check. So we kind of did that. And I think it's always a good idea before doing anything just to watch the movie with your colorist and, yeah. and talk about it. And so that will kind of tell him where you want it to go. Or like there are so many, so many things instead of jumping it right away, just like watch the whole thing as, as mm. a movie and, and, and then dive deeper into into that and sometimes like there are things that could change on the fly like I remember the scene where Jojo discovers her mother it was very funny and we pretty much had a different approach while shooting and we, we shifted the tone quite a lot and make it that that wasn't supposed to be the shifting point in the color palette and we yeah. made it that there wow. and it, it was again a huge team effort because we had a lot of artificial snow and VFX snow and all sorts <laughs> of other things and in the DI we were able to shift the tone quite a lot and mm. make, make the skies more desaturated and, and, and play with, with a lot of things there but we realized that that's a good moment for, for shifting the tone and while we're shooting that it wasn't supposed to be like that so everything in the dailies were like because I guess the thing with even seeing dailies, you're still seeing stuff out of context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And things things can shift around during editorial, which is mm. which is great. That's yeah. another great process. Yeah, yeah. And great to be able to have another chance at controlling the images after editorial has yeah. put stuff into context. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes different context. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> How involved was Taika in the, the DI? He was quite involved. Like, it tends to be boring at one point, so he wasn't there every day. Plus, like, he was doing a lot of other stuff at the same time, like the sound things and all sorts of other things. He, he was actually really helpful because a lot of times, like, him and I were stuck in a certain theme or a certain shot, and it was very great to, to have his input and realize that, right like, oh, we're on the right path where we shifted, like, totally <laughs> far from... <laughs> we should be he was coming quite often and, and reviewing reels and scenes and shots and, and the whole thing watching it and it's always interesting with the, to, to try to watch it without sound and, and sometimes mm. double speed and then you realize right away something is jumping at you or and what was it like working with Taika on set where he was playing such a major role in front of the camera as well as behind it was great. I mean, I there was one thing that I was afraid of, and mm. a, a lot of times, like especially that was our first collaboration. I didn't know what to expect and how how that would go because from from a logistic point of view, like if you think about it, like it can it can be a, a burden for for everybody. Like thinking that he will have to go through a scene and then probably watch it and watch playback and then. Mm. But I think because he's a very collaborative person and he he trusts his collaborators quite a lot. He had enough people around him that uh, sometimes like we, we kept moving. We didn't even need to, to watch playback with him oh. again because he knew that like his trusted producer or Ra or somebody else was watching the monitor and, and it was enough for him to to trust us and, and say, wow. yeah, we can, we can move on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazing. so there were a lot of moments where he would watch playback and there were, there were moments where like he didn't need to and uh, he moved wow. on. Did you find that the fact that he was, you know, stuck in front of the camera a lot of the time made the pre-production process all the more important? I think so, yeah. 
Yeah, but I, again, like he's used to that because he's been doing it in all his movies. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a tool for him as well. So oh. and and it's amazing because there's so much involved, and the fact that he can jump from from one to another, it's, it's amazing. Wow, it's quite a skill. I think one uh, one thing that surprised me was that we we storyboarded the the war scenes quite a lot, and we we yep. knew we had to. So really be prepared for those because there are so many things to, to consider and so many moving parts and explosions and all sorts <laughs> of, of, of things that we have to <laughs> to think about. But then everything was so loose. I remember like, the first day, I remember like kind of trying and create a little bit of a shot list and then going on set and he was like, yeah, but let's see what the actors are doing. And then we took our time to rehearse and then block it and then figuring out how to shoot it. So when you do that, and that's how I realized, like that's how he gets those amazing performances from such young actors because wow. he likes to give them the most amount of freedom possible. And, and it kind of works both ways because what I realized that because we took our time to watch them rehearse and try to see how to make the scene work for them, mm. like we got so many ideas from the way they're moving within a room or, or wow. the, the places they were choosing and, and so on. And there are amazing things that happen. I remember in one of the first scenes between Jojo and Elsa, I remember Roman sitting in front of the three mirrors and I was like, oh, that's perfect. Like, why, why <laughs> did I ask you to sit anywhere else? And, <laughs> It, it was an amazing collaborative process. Yeah. It, was, it was really fun to, to be a part of. So in that rehearsal and blocking process, where do you want to be? Do you want to be next to the director or do you want to be on the periphery of the, the scene? It's interesting. At the beginning, I tried to be as close to him as possible, but then yeah. I realized it's actually better for both of us if I'm in, like, in, totally in the other corner of the room because he likes to give them time and we would, would rehearse once or twice or three times. And I remember we were both are kind of changing places and then talking about what each of us saw from where we were. Yeah. <laughs> and then it became kind of a thing where like we, we both try to be away from each other, just trying to absorb mm. from as many angles as possible while, while the actors were doing it. And I remember we were getting really excited about, about things like that. I was like, oh my God, I have to show you how it is from here. So I was like, now check this angle from here. And it was, it was an ongoing process. And it was, it was amazing. It was really, really amazing. Because there is something very different about looking at a location and planning a scene to being in the room and seeing the actors perform. Yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of times, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, if you go in an empty room and try to imagine how the scene will be, will, will play out, and, and then can come up with a plan that might be great, but so many times, like, whatever you're planning for ends end up being totally <laughs> different on, on yeah. uh, for so many reasons. But I feel that we we got so much more. Because it is teamwork, again, and it's like a collaborative mm. process. Yeah. You get so much more from the actors and from everybody else. And I think it's it's great when you have that atmosphere on set. Within my crew, for example, I I like when people are coming with ideas. I don't feel weird if yeah. uh, if, if somebody asks me something or like tells me they're like, oh, what about that? Have you ever thought about moving this practically here or <laughs> putting this light there? No, it's like it's such an amazing thing where like where you can you can collaborate and you can come up with, with amazing things if you if you do that. Yeah, it's definitely when when the craft is working at its best when you know that 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 kind of collaboration is happening, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
there's also something that I think the the audience can actually feel when the photography and the performances and all that stuff's feeding off each other. It's something that that's yeah. tangible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's everything becomes more organic, and you you feel that sometimes that's that's I guess our worst enemy when you feel that we try too hard. Certain yeah. things, you know. <laughs> but when when things are, are happening organically and like you don't ask yourself why the camera moved at a certain moment, I think that's that's when when everything works together and, and yeah, it's great. There's something about rehearsals as well that, like dailies, screenings, projected dailies, that it's something that was kind of much more necessary with with film and yet still has value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so because it's a continuous process. Uh, uh, it's like solving a puzzle and you keep working on it until the last day of shooting and then, <laughs> and then some more for the reshoots. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's an ongoing process and it's, it's great. With the, the change in colour palette at the end, how did that affect your approach to lighting? Not a lot because most of the scenes were outside and there yeah. were war scenes. So it was more about placing certain big lights far away, and the edge lights were not even, and then just like deciding if we if we gel those or not, and that mm. was kind of kind of it. It was a lot more into CDLs and, and certain approach from from that perspective. Right. Yeah. There's something beautiful about a large light far away. It's a quite a distinct if look, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And especially when you have that and smoke, that that's a totally <laughs> different thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And what's next for you? I'm, uh, I'm in prep now for a pilot. That's about it. And yeah. uh, reading a few, a few, a few things. I mean, it, it was great because I, I was just thinking about, about it. It's like we had two weeks of reshoots for JoJo at yeah. the beginning of last year, and it, it was amazing. Like it was a, a really interesting ride from uh, like after that to to the DI and all all the press we did and all the all the award season and and mm. all that. So it's like it, Pretty much filled the whole, the whole year. So I was kind of bouncing around commercials and yeah. and other things. And now I'm I'm just kind of back a little bit. And really excited to to see what's next. It's one of the things that has also changed, I guess. Where you know a cinematographer used to be on a film for a certain number of weeks and then you just move on. And now between reshoots and pickups and then the DI process and now being more involved in the the publicity as as a lot of cinematographers are, it is a much much bigger time commitment to be on a, a, a high profile feature film now, isn't it? That's true. But on the other hand, I kind of enjoy it because you get to remember all the good parts <laughs> and, and the whole process. <laughs> It's yeah. a more holistic process, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you find that means you need to be particularly careful about the projects that you do sign on to because it's it's this bigger time commitment? It's one of those things like with the awards, they're, they're great, but you never think about those when you choose a project. I think it's more about mm. like how much challenge you're seeking. <laughs> like if, if the story, you know, in my yeah. case, I'm attracted to things I, I've never done before. So I'm like really interesting in, in, in new things or new ways of telling a story. So I, I never really put too much thought if I'm attracted to a certain script. I mm. I try to, to think about it later. Like I, I tend to just like jump on and like I like that script, let's see if I get it and then again then <laughs> then you're you're going through the process, okay now what? Like now, now I have to figure out how to really shoot this thing. Uh, so, so that's why I don't think yeah, <laughs> pretty pretty much. Yeah. yeah. 
And I think it it has a certain beauty to it because then you're necessarily afraid of uh, failing or trying crazy. Mm. <laughs> it is interesting with cinematography because it is on one level a technical process and a very technical process, and yet so much of it does rely on intuition as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a strange combo because we're we're half engineers and half painters. I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, one, it's one of those things about you, it. You, you need to find. Yeah, yeah, that's true. How do you find balancing those those kind of those two sides of the brain through a project? I think on on each project you have to kind of figure out what's what's more important. There mm. are there are stories that require more a more technical approach and stories where you can be more loose and, and try things that are leaning more towards the artistic part of it than than the technical part of it. And I guess it's kind of choosing the tools. And that's the beauty now that we have so many tools. And, There's and so much freedom uh, with that now, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. But I think the danger with that is like using too many of them. So I think <laughs> a lot of times I'm trying, kind of like in the DI, I'm trying to limit yeah, myself yeah. and say like, okay, what's the best tools for telling this story? Or for, even for each scene, I'm trying to determine which is the, the tool that I really want to use for, for that particular scene. And in that, in that way, you you try to be safer because I think like when you try to use too many tools, they kind of get in each other's way somehow. I think it's good to have restrictions and to, to try to limit yourself. Yeah, and, and I guess it's one of the things with how far the technology has gone that you have to choose to put those limits on yourself. Yeah. Like choosing to have projected dailies, like choosing to have rehearsals. It's a choice to have that discipline. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things I remember when I was a kid, like my my parents used to tell me, like, oh, like if you want to be a doctor, then it's kind of hard because you you have to learn your whole life. And I was like, I don't want to be a doctor. But then I realized, like, now every single month we have a new thing that comes (laughs) up, even a light or a new camera. I was like, I think we kind of got there. We, we pretty much were learning every, yeah, yeah. every day. <laughs> and all of that, you know, across cameras and lenses and lighting and post-production, it's all kind of continuing to develop at such a fast pace. Yeah, yeah, but that's great. I mean, yeah. If you think about it, like how many tools we have now, I'm trying to, to remember like when, when I was in the film school, we had probably like three options altogether and that was it. <laughs> Yeah, and um, and very little in terms of combinations of things. Whereas now, uh, yeah, yeah, just so so many possibilities. Even just the way that uh, y- the different ways that you can use power windows, I think, is just there's so yeah, much scope yeah, there. Yeah, uh, and being able to motion track them so easily now. Yeah, and what's interesting about about that is that I think it's a mistake if that means that you'll be on set and say like, okay, we can fix it later. Yeah, I think. It's always good to know you have that tool and you mm. make certain decisions based on the fact that you know you can you can use that certain tool. But like I think there's a certain percentage if you rely 100 percent on a power window, that's not a good thing. But yeah. you know it's there and it puts you up to like 10 or 20 <laughs> percent. You know, and I think finding again finding the balance, see like what, how much of, of each tools I want to use in the end. And I guess, the, you know, in the film days and film photochemical finish, there was such a skill involved in just being able to produce an acceptable result out of the camera. And yeah. now yeah. with digital cameras and good quality monitors and all that stuff, that's actually not that difficult now. 
But yeah. one of yeah. the biggest skills is that one of being able to determine what is right to be doing on set and what's right to be doing in, in post. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very delicate balance. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and also uh, it's like somehow the expectations are growing every year. Every year you have to to try to be faster and <laughs> to try to think faster. <laughs> you know, I think that's the main trade-off. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, things are moving at a, constantly at a faster pace every year. It's mm. like it. But I think it's something to eat trying to know your tools and being able to make the right decision on that. Uh, now when you really have to, to move on and how much of it you can fix it later and yeah. how much you don't need to or, or something like that. <laughs> what you can get away with and what you can't. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that being very involved with uh, the DI as those tools have progressed, that helps you on set to be able to make those decisions in the right way? Yeah, definitely. I remember my first two movies I finished photochemical and like in, in Romania where I remember the color correction process was such a, a strange thing because think about it like not only that you weren't able to adjust contrast, yeah. uh, the only way to adjust the contrast was to choose a certain print, but mm. that was about it. Yeah, yeah. And and the fact that you were never able to, to just up and watch freeze frames, you would constantly go through prints and at the end of it, you're like, oh, that was a little magenta, right? Everybody saw that? And then <laughs> like now when you're just like, you are able to look at one frame for half an hour if you want to. <laughs> that, that's amazing. Do you find though that there's an advantage to having had that experience and the discipline of that experience and then bringing that to this flexibility? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it is, but it's not essential, I think. I mean, it's, it's interesting because the same way as shooting skills as a cinematographer, I think it helps a lot, just like keep the training and the skills going. <laughs> but it's interesting, and I shoot a lot of film on when I end up shooting skills, but it's hard to say. I mean, I think you can as well learn really well uh, only digital, but I think it, it was something to it, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, I guess you appreciate the tools a little more <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the fact that you have those tools. And there are a lot of things that kind of translated from that. I mean, even I remember from my darkroom days and like transitioning that to Photoshop. And yeah. there are a lot of people who are like still staying away from Photoshop. And I'm like, no, we kind of did the same in the darkroom. I never printed mm. just because the aspect ratio of a paper, it's not the same thing as the aspect ratio of, of my 35 negative or my yeah. 120 negative. They're yeah. totally different. <laughs> they have to crop somehow anyway. And yeah. the fact that I'm cropping or I'm adding a few shades here and there on the enlarger, it's the same thing as I'm doing now in Photoshop. And But I appreciate the tools now. There, It's like takes it takes faster. <laughs> it's like it takes less time faster, and you can be more precise. I guess in in that sense of you know being able to to crop and reframe and that sort of thing, there's a lot of flexibility now in the digital post-production process that was there in the stills darkroom but never to any realistic extent in the photochemical motion picture finish. Yeah, and for some reason in Europe, like the, the intranegative was a nightmare. I don't know why they yeah. we, we got that so wrong for so many years. <laughs> I remember I was like, when I did an interneg in the US, I was like, oh, that's how an interneg should look like. <laughs> Ours were like all grainy and like different contrasts. So, wow. uh, just a basic fade in, fade out. It was a nightmare. 
nightmare because the contrast will change, everything will change. <laughs> and, uh, like thinking of, uh, like you get to appreciate that for sure. <laughs> you don't realize. Like, yeah, it's very easy for people to forget what a struggle it was to control contrast in the photochemical process. Yeah, yeah. Compared yeah. to what it is now where it's just a twist of a dial. It's, um, it's very exciting times for our craft, isn't it? I, I think so. No, I think what I used to, what I used to eat, and that's what I, I sometimes I get really excited about, I think the fact that everybody has access to, to good cameras and lenses, I think it's it's a way that like your, your audience gets a certain training visually that mm. like their expectation. Of They've got literacy they with it. Quite a lot, but it feels it's a really interesting conversation, and mm. all of a sudden, it feels that the audience gets to appreciate more, but they they demand more as well. So I find it very challenging and, and interesting at the same time. Yeah, it's kind of a virtuous escalation where the audience gets more sophisticated in their visual appreciation yeah. of things, and that that pushes us to to push the envelope again further and further. Yeah, yeah. So what's it like going back to doing a pilot? In 2020, when you know televisions had this incredible renaissance, <laughs> it's great because I'm always I, I didn't do a lot of TV. I think this is only my third pilot, but I always try to to treat it as a as a movie. And because I always feel weird when I hear people on TV set of like saying, "Oh, are you just TV?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> if you treat it like that, that." what it will be. I feel that if you aim high, you might never reach that point, but at least you, you have a chance of going mm. closer to, to that. I find a, it's a big difference and it can be a struggle sometimes after you finish a feature to jump right away into a commercial because I think they're, they're both really interesting, but they're so different and mm. you have to, to shift your approach quite a lot because all of a sudden you, you have to tell the story in 30 seconds. So it's a totally different, different approach. Yeah. But with TV now, I feel that they're getting closer and closer to features. And certainly that's what the audience's expectation is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they get there. And the way that they consume them. Yeah, yeah. And you, you can see amazing quality and, and the, sometimes a very filmic approach, which is great. Mm. Fantastic. Thanks so much for stopping in. Thanks for having me again. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And that was Mihai Malamare Jr. brought to you with the support of ARI Australia and MZ Online Training. See you next time.